I'm Viola Juda. I'm Anthony Fowler. I am Will Howell, and this is not another politics podcast. Guys, I'm looking out of my window here, and there are there are thousands of chairs because graduation is right around the corner here at the University of Chicago, and there are people setting up a giant stage. It's all very exciting. Very exciting. It's another year. <laughs> <laughs> are you going well to, to commencement? You know, I am the, the vice marshal of this university, and so I get to wear this whole thing and carry a scepter and lead in the president's party. It's very exciting. I, I'm going to think of you as the hall monitor of the university. Is that is that fair? You're the one who checks out to see if you have a, like a, a hall pass or a bathroom pass or that's, something like that. That's basically okay. right. Although I have like <laughs> nobody to report to nor any authority you know, to wield uh, when, when people misbehave. But <laughs> so look, a topic that we have talked a lot about on our podcast are sort of threats to democracy, things that are challenging our democracy, the health of our democracy. And, and when these, this issue is raised, people will often point towards the amount of money that's in our politics. And I think the notion here is, is that the mere fact that lots and lots of money is spent is a kind of sign that uh, politicians are bought and paid for, and that the public interest is somehow being perverted by virtue of all the money flowing in to public coffers. It's not clear that that's obviously true, because I mean, if no money were given, you might worry about a disengaged public. There, so like, what the optimal amount is to be spent on our politics isn't clear. But before all that, there's a kind of first order question about who's spending this money. Like, where is this money coming from and who is it being directed to? And today we're going to investigate that question. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of thoughts on this general topic and maybe we'll get into some of them as this episode goes on. But there are, pretty, there are some pretty interesting puzzles, I think, in this, in this literature. Why do people give at all when, you know, our best estimates suggest that it costs something like on the order of $200 for, for, for one vote. And so the chances that your donation, that your, you know, your aunt's donation to Barack Obama of $50 is going to change the results of the presidential election or maybe one in... 200 million or something like that, right? It's just like basically no chance that it's going to make a difference. So, so why even do it? But one of the, you know, one of the challenges in campaign finance is even just collecting the data. What, what can we actually observe? And for years, the kinds of things we could observe were large donations because they had to be publicly disclosed. But we didn't know very much about small donations. We didn't know very much about who, who were all these people writing $50 checks to the Obama campaign and so forth and what were their motivations and what were they doing. And so, uh, Viola, you talked to somebody who has has an interesting paper on this and has some new, some new evidence to bring to bear on these questions. Yes, I talked to Laurent Bouton, who is from Georgetown University, and he wrote a paper called Small Campaign Donors. He wrote this paper with Julia Cage, Edward DeWitt, and Vincent Pons, so a lot of French names. Uh, I apologize for mispronouncing all of them, probably. In this paper, they were able to collect data on virtually all small donors, all donors to the Democratic Party for the last 10 years or more, and uh, around 80% of all donors to the Republican Party for the last two election cycles. Uh, and the reason they were able to collect this data is because more and more people who are donating money to the Republican Party and, and the Democratic Party rely on those publicly available vehicles, websites, let, let's call them, that make it super easy to donate money. And they also collect data on who donates money, their address, how much they donate and so on. Now we have a bigger picture, better picture of who the donors are, and also we are able to compare people who donate very little to people who donate a lot.
What motivated you to write this paper? We have all heard kind of impressive figures about these millions of small donors contributing to the campaign of Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama, Donald Trump. There are great papers on the topic, but there are still a lot of uh, open questions, and we are still not really understanding that uh, small donor phenomenon. What really made us start is an article in 538 about AgBlue, and that article made us realize that thanks to the growing intermediation of donation by conduits such as AgBlue and, and WinRed, we could now access detailed contribution level data on small donors. So before we had access to some information about donors because there was a reporting requirement that if you donate over $200, then uh, the political campaign has to report that they received money from you. But we did not know a lot about the small donors. And, and you say right now we have access to this data. And you mentioned ActBlue and WinRed. Can you tell me about what those are, what they do, and how they uh, collect data? Before ActBlue and WinRed, we had no information about this donation. The only thing we knew was the aggregate amount given to a particular committee in a given electoral cycle. Okay, now come AgBlue and WinRed, these so-called uh, conduits, which only purpose is to channel donations from contributors to candidates. Uh, what AgBlue is doing is just kind of a, a, is maybe a PayPal that was started in 2006, and this was only for democratic committees. In 2019, you know, Republicans, they launched their own uh, conduit, which is called WinRed during the 2020 electoral cycle. So now you have a data set of virtually all individual contributors uh, to political campaigns. On the Democratic side, so the, we observe more than 95% of contribution to Democratic candidates. Uh, on the Republican side, we have a bit of a less clear uh, pictures in the sense that we observe fewer donations because WinRed was was launched uh, so late, you know, was only launched in the last electoral cycle. So now your statement is correct. I would say that for 2020, in the 2020 electoral cycle, we really observed a vast majority of donations, including very, very small ones, which is the novelty of this of this data set. So how many of those small donors do we have? Like, what's the fraction of all the money that you observe in your data set that's coming from the small donors? If you think in terms of numbers of donation, right, the vast majority are from small donors. And how is this changing over time? Do we know anything about this? What we have observed in recent election, a really dramatic increase in the number of donations. And a striking phenomenon that we observe is that the number and the value of donations made by small donors has, has, has skyrocketed uh, since, you know, 2000, uh, let's say since 2016. Do you think this is related to the fact that ActBlue made it much easier to contribute or do you think it's an independent trend? Uh, clearly, ActBlue is this technological factor because ActBlue make it, makes it so easy to contribute to uh, a committee now, to a, to a candidate or any political group. And so, uh, and, and we saw that actually there were more small donations and small donors on the democratic uh, side for a while. And in 2020, with the introduction of Wing Red, we, can, we kind of see a catch up. So, so to be frank, just here, uh, in 2016, you know, uh, Donald Trump has been very successful at raising small donations. And this was before the event of Wing Red. Right. And Barack Obama has been very successful in 2008 and 2012 at raising donations without using ActBlue. 
So it seems that AgBlue is not a necessary condition or WinRed is discount. These are not necessary conditions to uh, raise small donations. But but it, it seems that, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, helping other types of candidates to do it. So when you look at your data set overall, um, are there any interesting facts that you uncovered about donors? Who are they? What do they look like? Are they different than you and me? You know, one of the beauty of this data set is that we have for each contribution information about the, the, the contribution in itself and the donor, as I had mentioned, right? With administrative data uh, level information, like type of information, which is information about your name, first name, last name, the address, the your employer, and your occupation. Okay, using that, we can infer with quite some accuracy your ethnicity and your gender. Using that information about gender, about ethnicity, and about your geography where you live, we can kind of compare donors to like large donors, small donors, to the, let's say, the population in general or the voting age population, right? And what we find is that actually donors, they are not representative of the voting age population, right? Essentially, when you, at the beginning of our, uh, of our sample, right, in, in 2006, 2008, donors are uh, white men. What is uh, interesting is that we see an evolution, okay? More and more women are donating now, and uh, more and more minorities are donating. Okay, so we see that over time, the population, the, the donor's population is becoming more representative of the voting age population in the US. And is it different for small donors and large donors? Yes, so actually this trend is very pronounced uh, for small donors uh, and much less for large donors. You have some results on how donors are dispersed geographically. Can you talk to me about this? What we find is that donors are not representative of the voting age population. Actually, donors mostly come from the coast and large metropolitan areas. There, we don't observe much difference uh, between small and large donors. So you observe data on the donors, but you also observe data on whom they donate to. So what do we know about the candidates that they donate to? Whom do they contribute to? What kind of races do they contribute to? So yes, uh, donors seem to be more likely to uh, donate to candidates in close races. Uh, donors seem to give much more, are much more likely to donate to candidates who run in their district, in the district in which they live and in the state in which they live. And donors are more likely to donate to a candidate with uh, the same ethnicity or the same gender as, uh, as them. And they are also, and they are affected by the ideology of the, of the candidate. Okay, giving more to kind of less extreme candidates in, on both directions. So not too much on the left, not too much on the right. Right. These are the kind of sweet spot. Do you see, do you find any differences between how small donors and big donors donate on those dimensions? Here we find that for both types of donors, so both large and small donors, all the, these factors that I just mentioned, so closeness, geography, and similarity in terms of gender and ethnicity matter, but all those factors seem to matter more for large donors and for small donors. Okay, so we end up with small donors, for instance, giving much more to out-of-state or an out-of-district candidates than, uh, than large donors. Why do you think that is the case? So that's the $1 million question. <laughs> so, so this is suggestive that small donors are more driven by what is called often in the literature expressive motives. 
than large donors, all right? And they are less driven by this kind of like political investment motives. So what about the ideology of candidates? Do donors prefer extremists? Uh, you know, we hear about this a lot, that voters prefer extremists, and that's why we are so polarized. Um, what do you find? So the main finding is that actually donors contribute less to most extreme candidates. They contribute more to the candidates who are kind of close to the median candidate in the Democratic Party. But for 2016 and 2018, you see kind of this shift with uh, donations by both large and small donors disproportionately to candidates on the left of the Democratic Party. So the jury is still out on the question of whether uh, more extreme candidates receive more donations. It seems like the pattern is changing over time and perhaps there is some truth to that, but we don't have enough years, I guess, in your data set to, to conclusively conclude. Yes, because here we don't have a measure of ideology for donors. It's, it's unclear what uh, drives this, right? Is it because, you know, a given set of donor is changing its uh, preferences and, you know, trying to push the party to the left? Or is it that these new donors that are entering are much more on the left of the, uh, of the political spectrum than others? And, you know, kind of driving this pattern. It could also be, you know, we don't know, that actually the, the, the donors, they give exactly as before, but that the party is the candidates that have uh, uh, moved to some extent. So you mentioned that your data is better on the democratic side because of Act Blue having existed for a while. And in your paper, you do try to do a comparison between Democrats and Republicans. So all the, all the findings that we talked about, they pertain mainly to... Uh, to the donors to the Democratic Party. But do you find any, when you just look at the latest elections, do you find any differences between Democratic donors and Republican donors? Is there anything that we should know about? I would say that broadly, the factors influencing the behavior of uh, donors on the Republican side are similar to the factors influencing the behavior of small donors, on the, of donors in general, sorry, on the Democratic side, with some uh, key differences. And I, I want to highlight two here. One is uh, donors are not less likely to contribute to incumbents in the general election uh, on the Republican side. And uh, the other big difference is on this tendency to contribute to candidates who are like you in terms of ethnicity and in terms of gender, okay, which is very different from what we find on the Democratic side where we had this positive effect of both matching on ethnicity and on, on gender. So this is all very interesting, but uh, sort of we've been dancing around this big question, um, at least a question that is in my mind. Uh, why do people contribute in the first place? When you asked me about my motivation, that was one of the big ones. <laughs> so that's, I find it, that, that's the big question here. And I, I, I don't think we can really conclude ever what are the motives driving the behavior of donors. But in terms of, of motives, the, the, the literature highlights kind of two broad classes of motives. You have the strategic motives that I've mentioned. So this contribution, that they, they, they see contribution as political investment. I contribute because uh, I want to change uh, the identity of the candidate winning the election, all right, that would be the electoral motive, or I want to get some favors. I want the, the candidate to uh, vote differently on a bill or uh, give me access, right? And then there are these non-strategic motives. You know, really people contribute 
because they get it's it's like a consumption good. I'm not expecting any a political return from my contribution. And what we discuss in the paper is that those different class of of motives they are associated to um, different patterns of behavior. The big problem here is that most patterns of behavior can be explained by most motives. So there are very few patterns of behavior that are, that are clearly distinctive of uh, one motive versus the other. Okay? So this said, I think still we uncover some results that hint at uh, the importance of the relative importance of the different motives. Donors give a lot to non-close races. In particular, they give a lot to sure losers. Right? That's a pattern of behavior that's very difficult to explain. What you need is the candidate to win. This was very interesting, Laurent. Thank you. My pleasure. So having collected all these data, what this paper then is providing is not just insight into the total amount of money that's being channeled through these dollars small dollar amounts, but we can get some sense of how many people are doing this and what kinds of people are doing this. And right out of the gate, we see that these kinds of contributions are increasing a lot. Yeah, so, so uh, I was wondering, and we didn't get to talk about this too much during the interview, but I was wondering to what extent this is because we have this act blue and win red. It's just so much easier to donate right now. You know, it's still interesting because this is still money going to the candidates and it still presumably affects their behavior, if not elections. But, uh, but I think it's, uh, there's a question to what extent this represents an increase in some sort of voters' participation in the electoral process or to what extent it's just a technological change. And that must be right on some level. I mean, it's, it, it was such a tedious thing for somebody to write a check to a campaign before. If it was $10, why bother? But you're getting now we're in this world of smartphones and email campaigns and social media campaigns. And you're just like, okay, fine. I guess I'll click the thing that says $10 donation to, I mean, I don't know why people do it. I, I, but I imagine there's some amount of like, whatever, it's a small amount of money and it's, and it takes me two seconds on my phone. I might as well just do it. And I'm being targeted in a way that I wasn't before. Right. I mean, there are two things. There's, it's, it's at once easier to do and I'm being, reached out to with all these texts and I'm sort of and, and these and these ads right our producer always tells us that uh, people don't seek out uh, podcasts they just listen to podcasts they hear an advertisement and they click on the on the advertised podcast That's what we're it's, exactly the, it's exactly the same with uh, donations you know you are not seeking out to donate money but as Anthony said you're walking around you, you you're listening to something there's an ad political ad and then it's like super easy to click and uh, donate something that you probably wouldn't do otherwise because you would just forget by the time you get to your checkbook. Yeah, is that right? Is that analog? Is that a fair comparison? Listening to a podcast and donating ten dollars to your campaign. I mean, presumably, people listen to podcasts because they enjoy them. Like they enjoy listening to the podcast. I hope. I hope somebody's enjoy or getting something out of it or getting some valuable information. The, what there, it's, there's no there's no there's no comparable utility or enjoyment that you get just from from having given ten dollars to your favorite congressional candidate, is there? No, those are those expressive benefits, right? That, in, that are associated with voting, that we say, ah, I have done something in the service of a righteous cause that makes me feel better. 
just by, and, and there I just have to push a button and I lose $10. I don't have to listen to us drone on, on, and on. Now, the upside of listening to us drone on, <laughs> and on, and on is that we promise not to follow up with a thousand, you know, requests for still more money. <laughs> so what do you think about the differences between small donors and big donors that they have identified? There are some interesting differences. I mean, for example, the all donors give more when it's a close race. All donors give more when it's, you know, when it's a candidate in your district or in your state. All donors are a little bit more likely to give when it's the someone from the same gender or someone from the same ethnicity. But it looks like small and large donors differ a bit. Large donors maybe appear to be a little bit more strategic. They're giving more when it's a close race, for example. Whereas the small donors seem to be more likely to give uh, outside of their district, for example, maybe maybe in a less strategic way, just like I, you know, I saw that person on television and I like them for some reason. So there are some of these interesting differences. It is worth pointing out that there's nothing inherently or substantively important about someone who gives $201 and $199, except that in the past, we previously didn't easily observe those, those donations under $200. So, so the comparison, there's a little bit of inside baseball part of this paper, which is we're comparing the donors that political scientists used to be able to observe to the donors that political scientists can now observe but didn't before, um, even though it's not like $200 was some substantively important cutoff that we thought should be really, really important for behavior. But it does turn out there are some interesting differences between those groups. Anthony, you said that the evidence points towards larger donors being more strategic. That certainly makes sense with regards to their finding about close elections. But the out-of-state effect, that could be understood as just, it's, it's, a, it's a function of who I heard on the radio, right? And so, sure, I'll send them some money. But it could be some really calculated, no? That, like, I, I'm only going to give $100. I, I'm in a state wherein it's not close at all, and I want to give it to somebody outside of my state or outside of my district where it is more competitive or where I think my dollars will go further. Or the, I mean, at least one can tell a story that that's a sign of somebody being strategic. No? I don't know. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, if you had to guess why are large donors more likely to give to candidates in their state or their district. Some part of it is probably these are the people with whom you have a relationship. These are also the people with whom you would like to have some access. You'd like to, maybe you own a company in that district and you'd like to be able to call up their office and ask for help or something like that. So that's the sense in which you might think of that as being strategic for a large donor. For a small donor, they, you might think, yes, I'm, I'm targeting, I, I want to find the district in the country where my dollar is most likely to make a difference. But if they were doing a lot of that, then you would think they should be especially likely to give in close races. And they're actually much less likely to give in close races relative to the large donors. So it seems like it's something else. There's some other reason why they're targeting these, these races. It could be ideological proximity. Like I found this is, this is the person that speaks to me the most and I just like what they have to say. It could be I just happen to, they're in the news a lot, whereas my local, my local candidates aren't in the news a lot. Um, that's the sense in which I would interpret this as maybe a little bit less strategic and more, and more expressive. But you know, we should read into, if we can read into the record, just a, a couple more facts about these distinctions. We've got the competitive states and in-state effects. They also have findings with regards to race and sex. So we find, for instance, that women are much more likely to be represented in the small donor camp than in the large donor camp. They're 54%, 54% of the small donor population, but only 38% of the large donor population. Blacks and Hispanics are about twice as likely to be represented in the small donor population than in the large donor population, uh, although they both are 
significantly less likely to be represented in either group relative to their representation in the country as a whole. And in no surprise, whites are disproportionately likely to be represented in both relative to their overall population. But whites take up a larger share of the large donor population than, than of the small donor population. I don't know what to make of those particular findings, but there they are. They stand front and center in the paper. And to the extent that we're trying to make sense of who these people are in the small donor population, it's worth recognizing these. Yeah, so, so to me, in a sense, it was surprising how few differences there were between those large donors and small donors. And I understand it's, you know, it's an arbitrary distinction, but still, I was expecting there to be much of a difference. It's definitely, it definitely seems good in a sense of representation that small donors seem to be slightly more representative of the U.S. population as a whole because the, the size of small donations is going up, has been going up over time. That would be good news. And, you know, that it might be driven by a mechanical thing, you know, like uh, minorities and women are underrepresented in business. And, you know, I guess a large a chunk of large donors are are, are just very successful people who can afford to donate a lot. So, so perhaps this is not surprising, but it would be good news. I, I was just surprised that the shift between the big donors and small donor, donors in this dimension wasn't so large. And one thing where there was basically no difference was a, a geographical concentration. It seems that small donors and big donors are concentrated on the coast and in big uh, agglomerations. Uh, so, so, you know, a glass half full and glass half empty to me. Is that, I mean, is that something we should linger on for a second? The fact that the donors are from an unusual subset of, uh, of places in the U.S. Um, it's, this is not representative who's giving a lot of money. And that's true even if we're looking at, you know, if we're looking at like the Montana Senate race or something, it seems like a disproportionate amount of money is coming from, uh, coming from big cities and so forth. What's, what, do we, what do we make of that? And is there, if you're from Montana, is there a reason to be upset about that and saying, why are all these, why are all these people from who don't know about our, our interests and our challenges and so forth, why are they giving all this money in our race? I, so I guess I'd say, look, the good people from Montana are electing people to Congress that are making decisions on behalf of the whole country. And a democracy that says the only people that have any say that happens with you know, the internal dynamics of a race within one district are the people who live within that district is... is problematic. These are, these are national races. So I guess I don't have much of a problem with that. I think the thing, the thing that is noteworthy is that it may be that the biggest distinction has to do not with small and big donors, but non-donors and donors. Um, and to the extent that money perverts our politics in one way or another, it's doing so at the behest of people who are not representative of the whole country. I think I have a little bit more of a problem with that. We've organized our elections uh, the way we did for a reason. You can't vote in the elections in Montana. Uh, so why why can you affect those races by give, donating money? It's, it's not obvious to me that this is wrong per se, but it's also not obvious to me that this is how we've, we've intended, how we've intentionally designed our system. I think this might be some sort of byproduct of us not thinking that eventually people will start donating to races outside of their districts and outside of their states. And then if you have these big chunks of the country where people are not donating, where their, their races are being affected by donations from other parts of the country, then, you know, that, that put in question the representation of those people. And again, you could say, well, they don't donate because, perhaps because they don't care enough. But I think that would be too simplistic, too simplistic to say. So nobody's saying that we in Chicago can kind of drive over to Montana and cast our votes in those elections. But in the same 
way that the national media can affect what happens locally, which has all these sort of spillover effects, so too can people give. I don't, I don't see the problem in ways that they want to support any candidates that they want, even if they can't vote for them. Well, I guess uh, the answer to that depends also about, on how you think about what this money does. If, and I know that Anthony is going to tell us that this money doesn't do anything. <laughs> but if you, think about, if you think about this money just providing information, you know, I'm donating to, to a candidate and this candidate can run more uh, ads and so on. And in this way, I'm informing the citizens of a particular district uh, about the candidates, then, then I think you're right. And, you know, the same way I could go there and talk to people that no one for, forbids me from doing that. Um, then I think that's fine. But if we think that money somehow affects the outcome via different channels, then I think it, it sort of becomes a question of who is electing whom in which district. But we have some evidence that shows that if I call you up and I, as your cousin, lean on you to vote one way or another, that that, that actually does have, a, have a, a reasonable effect on your willingness to vote and how you vote. And so are we to then say we're not going to allow for that to happen because the people in that in that district have to come to their own decisions on their own terms and not to be, you know, influenced by outside nefarious forces, like you calling your cousin? Yeah, certainly, obviously, certainly not. I think, yeah, we've got to decide, like, there's, there's obviously trade-offs. There's trade-offs in terms of how much fairness do we want to regulate and, and are we willing to restrict free speech and so forth. And, and obviously those, you know, those are those are difficult things for for us to weigh. I share I share some of Viola's reservations though with the fact here we've got a political system that's supposed to represent everybody in America. And actually if looking at their maps, maybe Montana wasn't even the best case to pick. I mean there are some states like Kentucky, for example, where like there's almost no donors coming from Kentucky. And yet, you know, there's still candidates raising millions of dollars. There's some you know, there's something this that's somewhat bothersome about that. The idea that how much money you have and how and the ability you have to advertise and so forth and get your message out there is going to depend on your ability to raise money from places like New York and Chicago and San Francisco and people in Kentucky don't have a say over, you know, which candidates are, have more resources and so forth. But I mean, the thing I take solace in is the fact that probably, like Viola said, this money isn't doing a whole lot. And it's only really a concern if you think that these voters in Kentucky are so naive that they would just see, oh, look, that guy's running lots of television ads. I better vote for, for him or her. And uh, it does make you wonder, you know, when Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and other important political people get together, how often do they think about what a regular voter in Kentucky thinks about? The answer is probably almost never. But they spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, where are we, you know, how are we going to get our big donations from people in San Francisco and New York and so forth? And that might lead to policies that don't do a very good job representing regular Americans. One clarification I think is in order that the maps we are looking at, they only show where the donors come from, but they don't necessarily claim that then the money that, that's collected on the coast flows into the races in Kentucky. I don't think they have done this kind of analysis. So we know that there's a lot of out-of-state uh, and out-of-district uh, giving, but, but I don't know to what extent this is money flowing from one place to another in huge quantities. So perhaps we are just in those multiple equilibria that on the coast we have both sides collecting a lot of money and at the end of the day this all washes out and then you have places where um, candidates don't get uh, huge amounts of money and, and you know they, they still compete basically on the same level. I guess I'm, I'm really I'm struck that you two are taking this line of argument that if you, I, I am I'm surprised I was not ready for this so um, particularly given that we know that these effects are small and we spend a lot of time on this podcast holding up the rationality of the voter and lamenting 
the demise of local news, which we know has had all kinds of effects. So I guess if a world in which NPR, National Public Radio, wanted to expand into um, Kentucky using funds that were not raised by people in Kentucky, would you want to object to that? Because that might have an effect, actually, on the votes that are cast, and that is being driven by outside actors with agendas of their own. I think my response to that is that I don't know what this money is doing. And I take Anthony's, uh, you know, Anthony is my most informed source on this question. And I take it that we don't have a lot of evidence that money is doing anything. But if I even, but, but, and then we shouldn't care. But um, putting that aside, you know, if, if I think that this money is really providing information, then that's great. Then yeah, I'm completely with you, Will. But I just don't know. My, my prior would be that uh, it's, this is money spent on leaflets and uh, campaign ads that are not necessarily the most informative. We've all seen those ads. We see how actually, um, you know, how much misinformation there is in those ads. Uh, so, so that would worry me that we can affect misinformation in Kentucky. Yeah, I'm certainly to try to answer your question more directly. Well, I mean, I certainly would not pr- would support a law that said let's ban outside money from coming in and informing voters in Kentucky. I'm certainly not in favor of that. But if it were the case that the only way for voters in Kentucky to get information about political candidates was through NPR and the New York Times and through ads funded by people from San Francisco, I would say that's not a good situation. What different, what's, the, what's the counterfactual? I mean, one counterfactual would be some kind of more aggressive public funding law that actually said, like, you know, political candidates get a certain amount of money and they can, and they can, be, you know, they can be funded publicly and they don't have to rely on donations from people in San Francisco and New York and so forth. But I, 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 I would be concerned by the possibility that that kind of, you know, elites who don't know much or care much about Kentucky have, are having disproportionate influence in Kentucky elections. And I would say that about, about any state. I would say the same thing. If it, if it were the case that it was all oil tycoons from Houston that were influencing Chicago elections, I would say, I don't like that. And I don't think you would like that either. No, I get it. I get it. I, I, it is a tough issue to try to figure out how you would regulate this, if at all, in a principled way. Um, okay, so um, I don't know. What we, I, I'm going to hold, I'm gonna hold my guns here, but I think... Um, okay. But but there's another okay. finding that I'm really interested in hearing what you guys think, which is this finding that particularly over the last two elections, it was not so beforehand. Beforehand, most people at the center of the party, kind of the median member of the Democratic Party, was getting a disproportionate share of these contributions. That's no longer true. At least it wasn't true in 2016 and 2018, where the most liberal Democrats were getting the most money, which is a striking finding. And I'm not quite sure what to do with it. It pushes back against a couple of notions. One right now is that we're used to talking about asymmetric polarization, that the Republicans have become much more conservative than the Democrats have become more liberal over the last 50 years. And that's true in terms of voting behavior. But what we see recently is a, uh, the rise of a far left wing within the Democratic Party. And it sure looks like a lot of money is going to that far left wing. And that the more moderate members of the Democratic Party are not as attracting as much attention or as much money. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a striking finding for sure. And it, it certainly raises concerns that, you know, you wonder how is it the case that our candidates are so unrepresentative of the general population? Maybe this is part of the story. Maybe it is much easier to even field the campaign and raise the money you need to field the campaign if you're an extremist. And maybe moderates have a hard time raising money for some reason. 
I mean, I don't think AOC is shifting to the left because she thinks that's where the donations are. I think she really is there, and she happens to be attracting some donations. Uh, but it does raise this concern that maybe maybe the donors are contributing a bit to polarization, extremism, and so forth. So, okay, so 2012, 2014, it seems that not the most moderate uh, Democrats receive most donations, but those that are sort of around the median of the voter in the Democratic Party, which would make a lot of sense, I think, to me. And then 2016 and 2018, there's a stark change in behavior. And then uh, they, they can't really repeat this analysis for 2020, but they do something, they calculate the ideological scores somehow, and there they seem that this pattern goes away again. Uh, so I think, I think there's a question of to what extent we see some sort of uh, variation across years, which might be driven by different candidates running or perhaps different issues being considered and being important at the time. I do have a small concern about this analysis. We are inferring the ideology of the candidates from the contributions they have received. Yes. And it's not obvious which way that biases things that could push in different directions. And that obviously, I don't, I don't have a story yet as to why things were different in 2014 versus 2016. But you could worry that there are some people who are, they're just good at raising money from the kinds of, they're good at social media or something like that, right? There could be some candidates who are just good at saying things that excite people on social media and they get donations from the kinds of people who usually give to more left-wing causes. And they end up looking more liberal than they really are, more extreme than they really are, because of who else they've gotten donations from. You see the you see the trickiness, and you could imagine that kind of thing changes between 2014 and 2016 in a way that could potentially explain some of this result. I'm not saying that 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 explains all of it, but it's just a it's just a complication here. Is that it's we don't have a perfect measure, and in some ways, it's not ideal that the measure of ideology is inferred from campaign contributions. No, I agree, I agree with that. I mean, it's, it's inferred from the identity of the people and individuals, the organizations giving the money. If I had to guess, the big effect here is a Trump effect because there's a sharp shift in, in the distribution of campaign givings in ways that appears to benefit people on the far left of the Democratic Party. Well, well you have a paper on this, right? That's pretty interesting. You have a related paper on messaging around Trump affecting fundraising. It's true. So that's, I mean, I think it's a Trump story. It's, it's that the Democrats look over at Trump and say, oh my God, not that. And I want to then give to the most extreme alternative I can identify. I want to differentiate myself as much as I possibly can from that alternative. And you see that being playing out in 2016 and in 2018. And so the test of this proposition would come in the 2022 midterms, right? If when we get those data, when Trump is not in office and is not on the ballot. And talk more about that paper. So you and Shufu have this paper on tweets, right? It's tweets and other, and, other, and other public statements. And when a Democrat criticizes Trump, they get a big uptick in donations. They get right? an uptick in the immediate aftermath of sending a tweet that is critical of Trump. Democrats get a bump up and Republicans are punished if they dare say anything negative about Trump on Twitter. So could that, I mean, could that basically be the story here? Could that explain it? Could it used to be that kind of regular Democrats got the most donations and then Trump comes along and the most important thing to me is that I hate Trump. I see this person's criticizing Trump all the time, so I give them more money. And it just so happens that the more extreme Democrats are the ones who are more vocally criticizing Trump and the more moderate Democrats are, they're, they're running in purple districts and maybe they don't like Trump either, but they're kind of, they're not as vocal about it. 
And so you see this big uptick of donations for the extremists, not because they're extreme per se, but because they're the ones who are criticizing Trump. And I know I don't like Trump, and so I want to do whatever I is that what do you think? I think that could go some distance towards it. But that, that's why I think uh, I, I can see this I can see this mechanism uh, playing out very well. But then we should see I think we should see differences between small donors and large donors in a sense that if we believe those really large donors are those who are quite quite strategic and they are not really subject to this kind of emotional upheavals because after all they are donating huge amount of money so presumably think about where their money is going and why they are donating to particular candidates and after all like you know again we want to emphasize that in 2020 even though they cannot repeat this analysis they don't seem to uh, find any patterns when they try to do something uh, approximately similar um, a few years from now they'll be able to do that so we'll see what happens but 20 if anything 2020 should be also this kind of election where we really uh, you know, we're talking about Trump all the time and people really have their opinions made up. If it's true that we don't see that pattern and uh, this would be consistent with Biden winning the, elect the presidential election, then, then I think there's something more going on there. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. Capitalism uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways that capitalism is, and more often than not isn't, working today. From the debate over how to distribute a vaccine to the morality of a wealth tax, capitalism clearly explains how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. Listen to Capitalism, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. So, so in the paper, they talk a lot about this propensity of donors to give to candidates who are of the same race, of the same ethnicity, and of the same gender. Right? It's not, not, not huge effects, not huge differences, but it's there. There's, there's clearly a pattern. It seems to be, if anything, a little bit bigger for large donors than it is for small donors. Uh, but it's there only for the Democrats, and it's not there for the Republicans. I'm guessing if you polled you know, people around, around Hyde Park or... Berkeley, California, or Palo Alto, or other places where we have lots of listeners, they would, they would have predicted the opposite. They would have said, oh, well, Republicans are more sexist and more racist. And so, of course, they are more likely to change their giving behavior based on the race and gender of the candidates. But it turns out it's Democrats who, um, by this measure, are, are more discriminatory in their, in their giving based on race and gender. What did you make of all that? <laughs> you put that in the most charged way. I love it. Did I? Yeah. Yeah. To link it to how racist or sexist one is, right, that women give are more likely to give to women or that African-Americans are more likely to give to African-Americans. Democratic women are more likely to give to women. You got to correct yourself there. Yes. Okay. Huh? But right, right. Within the Democratic <laughs> Party. Um, uh -huh. That is that a sign of, what is that a sign of? Like, what is the meaning we ascribe to that? Can it be a little bit mechanical in a sense that Again, I'm speculating here. Most of the candidates on the Republican side are wild, white males, and most of the donors are white males, especially among the large donors, and somehow we don't see enough variation there. Or am I completely misreading the analysis? I mean, it could be that this is the standard errors are really large, that there's less precision for Republicans and for Democrats for precisely that reason. That's not what Laurent said. He said, we tested for this and we didn't find any difference for Republicans. I mean, there's still some variation for Republicans. One thing I could imagine, it could be the case that, you know, in, in order to be a Republican candidate, 
and also be a woman or also be black. It might be that you're especially conservative or something. Like you have to be, you have to have such, you know, or you have to have, or you have to be especially high valence or something. Like there has to be something that allowed you to get through a Republican primary and so forth. Um, and maybe, and maybe that explains why there's not the big difference for Republicans or something like that. But, but I don't know. But I think another, another possibility is maybe Republicans are selecting more on ideology and they're just picking the better, you know, who, whoever they believe to be the better candidate in terms of, the merits of the candidates and the ideology of the candidates and Democrats seem to be selecting more on these descriptive identity-based characteristics, which would kind of make sense in the sense that I mean, you, certainly Democrats talk a lot more about these kind of identity-based characteristics than Republicans do. So that fits. But the fact but that the these identity characteristics also correlate with valence characteristics and ideology, I mean, you'd want to have direct measures of this to pin this down, right? Not just by looking at the fact that women vote for women and men vote for men. Democratic women vote for women. That's what I mean. We're talking about the Democratic Party now. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, so I think that could be a story, but also it could be that, uh, as Will said, gender and ethnicity and so on, they correlated with behavior and ideology and so on. And and Sikwa are more likely to vote for a woman because she's more likely to represent uh, the issues, the vote of the issues, the way that I care about, the way I would like women to vote and not men to vote. You know, it's hard to say for me that this is just uh, coming from this identity politics. But but maybe it is that somehow, uh, you know, maybe the Democrats are more responding to what they believe the candidates are representing when they are running. And maybe Republicans are still more stuck in, we are all going to vote for white males. I don't know. That's the sort of negative reading of this result. If that's true, then that too is just as laden with identity concerns as the story. They work in a different way, but as the true. story about Democrats, as the evidence for, excuse me, true. the evidence that we have on Democrats. I mean, I think that's, I think that's probably uh, unfair to the Republicans. Um, I mean, I think there are, you know, there certainly are examples of of female Republican candidates and non-white Republican candidates raising money and, and fielding successful campaigns. They're in the data. And it seems like they're, on average, just as able to raise money from, say, white male Republicans as white male Republican candidates. But they're significantly less represented in the party. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. White men constitute a vastly larger share of the Republican Party than do white men in the Democratic Party. I wonder if there's a finding that two weeks from now, you guys are going to still you're going to be talking about um, that you take away from the paper. The thing that you said, I didn't expect that, or I'm really struck by that, and I'm going to carry that with me. I think for me, it's probably the fact that the large donors and small donors aren't as different as you might have thought. They are different, and, it, and it's interesting to document those differences. And we've talked about some of those differences, but it turns out that it turns out there's not some huge difference that maybe you know maybe the kind of thing that motivates the the rich person the really rich person to give thousands of dollars is kind of the same thing that motivates the moderately rich person to give a hundred dollars, which is to say, maybe, maybe none of it really makes all that much sense and all of it's kind of expressive in a way. But I thought, I thought that was, I thought that was interesting. I also I unfortunately have to go. Um, I just realized, should I do, <laughs> yes. can I do my bottom so, line very quickly? And then I think this is the bottom line. Maybe huh? that's my bottom line. That was my bottom line. Yeah. That's it's the funny really takeaway. They're not that different. Yeah, I think I agree with Anthony. I think that was also the most uh, surprising finding for me. And maybe it comes from the fact that you both have mentioned that somehow they take this arbitrary 
point of $200 to separate uh, donors into bins. And that's why somehow the differences get uh, blurred. But but uh, it, it was surprising that the person who spends a lot of money on donation and, and presumably thinks about uh, how to spend it uh, uh, is the same as the person who just gives $20 because, you know, it's because that's how much they were willing to give and, and, and they know that this is not going to affect the elections a lot. So I, 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 this was surprising to me and, um, and I think very interesting. And another thing that was surprising, I should have known that before, but it was sort of jarring to see on a graph is how much uh, the, the amount and the number of donations have gone up in the last few years. They have just exploded uh, in 2020. The paper just caught us in this moment, but I think it's, it's, it's really fascinating to uh, watch what's, what, what this is going to do to our politics. I agree with that. I was struck by that too. I mean, it's right out of the gate, you just see this explosion in this activity of late. Um, I mean, they do identify some differences between small and, and, and large donors, but I mean, and, they, and they, they try to parse them a bit, but I agree with you. you for the most part, the, the continuities are are are, are pretty um, remarkable and wide ranging. Uh, um, the one that I'm going to take with me though is what's happening on the far left of the Democratic Party. Um, I think that the amount of money that's being targeted in the last two elections, and I'll say there are rising divisions within the Democratic Party. And the, while the median hasn't shifted especially far in the last ten years, the 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 far left wing is become more significant politically, and I think. Um, while that may not bear on voting behavior today, given the current Congress, um, it may have important implications downstream for, for the direction of the Democratic Party. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.